Well, good morning, everybody. You guys sound like a happy bunch today. That's great. So, must be because of the warmer weather here we're having, or at least milder weather, right? Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and it seems that I got some splaining to do. Uh, last week, I had the privilege of uh, preaching up here, and I said that this week, Eric would be up here continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, in the Sermon of the Mount, um, many of you probably know Eric's a little sick this past week. Nothing serious, but I hear he's got a bit of pneumonia that he's fighting off. Uh, so we'll pray for him in a second. Um, but uh, we figured we'd give him a few more days to rest up and recover rather than making him rasp and wheeze and, you know, collapse or something like that. So uh, anyway, just to let you know. So let's uh, go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into a change of pace, not in the book of Matthew, but somewhere in the Old Testament. Lord, uh, it really is a delight just to hear uh, the joy in people's voices as they greet one another, Lord, and to know that uh, people know each other and love each other here. What a delight, Lord, for your people to be together. Uh, This is a gift from you, as is life, as uh, is this church, as is our salvation. I pray that you'd really tune our ears to hear this message today. Uh, We remember Eric. Uh, We pray that you'd heal him up from his pneumonia and give him strength and uh, strong voice even, and energy. And Lord, uh, even for others who are, are here today who are not feeling well physically, uh, we want to ask for your healing touch, Lord. We want to pray for healing for people who are uh, battling illness or even cancer, Lord. Uh, you are the one we look to, and we ask you to heal us. Uh, give us ears now as we turn to your word. We pray all this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, not too long ago, I went in for my annual checkup. And uh, when I say annual checkup, I'm kind of using that term a little loosely because uh, I typically only do my annual checkup every two or three years or so. And uh, no offense to those of you who might be in the medical profession, but I hate to go to see the doctor, uh, especially when it's for my annual checkup. Because if you're doing that, if you're going in for an annual checkup, you're not going in because you have a specific problem, right? It's not like your elbow's hurting or something like that, and you want to deal with it. It's you're just looking for trouble. <laughs> and um, one thing that I don't like about these annual checkup, checkups is it doesn't matter how good I feel going in to the doctor. Invariably, uh, it, I, the doctor always informs me of some bad news that I didn't even know I had, right? It's like I'll go in there feeling my normal, healthy, happy self, And then the doc will check me out, maybe look over my blood work results, and then he'll get frowny. And he'll say something completely mysterious in medical jargon that I don't understand. And then when I ask him to put it into plain English, he'll just say, Mr. Pivik, you can never eat pizza again. (laughs) Start walking 60 miles a week, and I'll see you again next year. And then I walk out of the office, and I'm ashamed to say this, but the temptation is there to completely ignore his vice and to keep on living my life like I did before I went in. Uh, I don't always take what the doctor says to heart. I don't typically start my 60-mile-a-week regimen uh, or the pizza. I might stay away for a week or so, but then I find I'm eating it nearly as I did before. And maybe some of you all can relate to this, right? Even we know that our health is a serious thing, but since we feel healthy in the moment we don't often get too concerned about avoiding a future health disaster. And that's really the truth of the matter, that we don't take to heart a warning 
when we don't feel like we're in any immediate danger. But there are other times in our life when we acutely feel danger or when we narrowly avoid a total disaster. And that's when we wake up and pay attention. And those are the times that we're most open to reassessing our way of life and to changing our habits. So let's say that that medical situation is different. Let's just say that I just had a heart attack and then went in to talk to the doctor. Now, when he looks at me and says, Mr. Pivik, you can never eat pizza again, uh, he suddenly got a captive audience. I'm going to look at my wife and my girls, and I'm going to give that doctor and his advice my full attention. Sometimes it takes the equivalent of a health scare to shock us to our senses and give us the incentive or the wake-up call we need to radically change our ways. And that's true with our health, and it's also true with how we deal with sin in our lives. Now, in this analogy, sin is kind of like having high cholesterol, right? If we're feeling okay in the moment, most of us ignore it and don't do too much about it, even though we know that too much of it will kill us. And just like we can be attempted to ignore the advice of doctors to eat healthier and exercise, we can be tempted to ignore the potential dangers of continued patterns of sin in our lives because we don't feel the immediate danger. For example, maybe we like material things. Uh, We like stuff, toys. And we think, well, what's the harm in that? That's not that big of a sin. But we never see the direction that that stuff is subtly pulling our lives down with or maybe the influence that it's having on our kids. Or maybe we've carved out a socially acceptable way to nurse our extramarital sexual desires, like by turning into our favorite Netflix series, never perceiving the constant buildup of plaques, plaque of arteries in our souls. Or it could be simple uh, selfishness, that in a desire to fulfill our dreams and our goals and our desires, uh, we don't even pay attention to how it might be affecting others. Or our everyday sin might be in other areas too. And although we know that this materialism or lust or selfishness or whatever our go-to sins are, are destructive, we might not be tempted to try to change that much if we don't feel immediate danger, right? Change is hard. We talked about this a bit last week. Change is costly. And we often end up spiritualizing everything and cling to our sin while we celebrate the so-called messy Christian life. We say, hey, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Sin's going to be with me till the day I die. So why bother trying too hard to deal with it? And for most of us, we're tempted to leave it at that. And I'll say this. Yeah, it's true. Uh, We are sinners saved by grace. Praise God. It's only because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, uh, because of his resurrection from the dead, that we can have any life or hope or peace. We can't save ourselves. But it does not follow that just because we're saved by grace that we should be tolerant of sinful patterns in our own lives and so close ear to the damage that it could, will be wrought in our lives or maybe our family's lives if we continue in them. So what can we do so that we can wake up and take this persistent but perhaps everyday sin in our lives seriously? What we need is a shock to our system. What we need is a, a sort of sin scare of sorts. And that's exactly what God has delivered to us in one particular book in his word. That book is the book of Amos, and that's found in the Old Testament. Amos is the name of the prophet that God has revealed this particular message to, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'd encourage you, uh, if you want to pull out your Bibles and read along with us, we're going to hop around to a few different passages in the book of Amos. 
Uh, it's near the end of the Old Testament, just before the beginning of the New, a few pages back there. I'll give you a chance to turn over there. And if you're looking at the book Amos, you're going to see that it's nine chapters long. Uh, well, I figured we'd have a preach-in today and stay here for ten hours. Just kidding. Um, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is I'm going to highlight a few different uh, sections of Amos for us so that we get a bird's-eye view of what this book and what the message is all about. And just to give us a starting point to kind of help us figure out this book that we might not go to that often, let me put it to you in these kind of odd terms. Amos is like a non-fatal heart attack. It's a loud and clear wake-up call to the people of God that things have got to change or else. And here's the big idea of the whole book in a nutshell, really. It's not just those who are on the outside of the church, those in the world who don't believe in Jesus who have a sin problem. We have a sin problem too. Even we, believers in Jesus Christ, need to take sin in our own lives seriously. Or if you want to put it in another way, repentance is for God's people too. So let's look at chapter 1, and we're going to just get a sampling here of this wake-up call. Uh, The book of Amos starts in verse 1, chapter 1, and I'll read it here. It says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. So uh, this is the start of the book. It basically identifies Amos, the prophet, as a shepherd. And it says when he saw this particular vision from God. And the thing that we need to know here, disregarding some of the names and that kind of thing, is that this was a time of huge prosperity in Israel in the northern kingdom here. Uh, Times were good. Business was booming. It seemed like all was right in the world for this people. And so the message that Amos is bringing of judgment would have been surprisingly shocking to them. But there it is uh, in verse 2 there. God is showing up, and he's showing up in judgment. And what follows for the rest of chapter 1 and really chapter 2 is a series of judgments on different nations that are surrounding Israel. Um, And these announcements are going to follow a very distinct pattern, and that pattern is going to reach a very pointed climax Now, we're going to just look at one of these examples of God's judgment on the nations just to kind of get a feel for it here. But here's the basic pattern. Amos is going to identify a place, like a nation or a nearby city. He's going to say, this is what their sin was. And then he's going to say, this is God's judgment on that sin. So let's just look at one example of this, and you'll you'll see what I'm saying here. So still in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, okay, so that's the first part. That's who's getting judged, the people of Damascus. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Okay, so that's their specific sin. They're basically being rough with the people of Gilead. Uh, Verse four, I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter of Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. And the last part of that there was the judgment. And uh, really, as you're hearing this, I really encourage you not to tune out here, okay? Don't get hung up on the specific details of where is this valley of this and this other altar of that and how are these people. That's not the point. We want to get the, the general idea. And the general idea is God's going to identify a nation. He's going to say, this is their sin, and this is how I'm going to judge it. And this pattern repeats itself over and over and over again in the first two chapters here. 
So um, I'll just skim here verse 6 of chapter 1. It says, For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. So he, he points up Gaza. Then he says, this is their sin and this is what they're going to do. Just skimming here. Verse 9, Tyre. Verse 11, Edom. Verse 13, Ammon. Chapter 2, verse 1, Moab. And he follows the same pattern. This is the nation or the city that uh, has sinned. This is their sin. This is how I'm going to respond. Now, really, at this point, when we get to chapter 2, it's where things start to get interesting. Because up to this point, the audience that Amos would have been talking to, these are the people living in the northern kingdom of Israel, they would have been totally on board with what Amos was saying. They didn't like these particular countries. Uh, They were full of Gentiles, for one thing. And these places that were getting judged by God were neighboring cities or kingdoms that hadn't always played fairly or nicely. The people of Israel would have been glad to hear, to some extent, that these people were getting judged for their sins. But then there's a twist in chapter 2. By the time we get to verse 4, chapter 2, it reads, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Now, the previous nations that had been mentioned had all been Gentile nations. But now the country that is in the crosshairs of God's wrath is actually God's own people in the southern kingdom, okay? Uh, And Jews in the south, and Amos is preaching to the people in the northern kingdom, which has split away. And what the point I'm trying to get here with this twist here is that the people in the northern kingdom whom Amos was speaking to might not have been clued in just yet. They might not have felt the full weight of his words. If they had been particularly insensitive to what Amos was saying, they might even have been glad to hear about their self-righteous neighbors to the south getting judged. They said, hey, serves those self-righteous jerks some good there. They think they have, just because they have the temple of God, that they're the only ones who can worship Yahweh. Well, go ahead and preach, Brother Amos, right? So they might if they had been that way. But if those in the north had a bit more sensitive hearts, the mention of Judah might make them sweat a little bit. And they'd probably keep their mouths shut because they'd see the torque with which this was beginning to turn. Because all these judgments being doled out to the other nations were only the opening act for the big message that's about to hit. In short, Amos is about to let the people in Israel know that shockingly, God judges even his own. Now, this is not a feel-good message, right? Neither for us uh, nor for the people of Amos's day. But it is a message of tough love. And there is a good destination that God is bringing this message to by the end of the book. So hold on for that. Uh, But he has to bring them to that good message by first leading them through this tough road of painful truth. By confronting them and their sin. It's kind of like an intervention of sorts. So let's read quite a few verses here about God judging his own. All these other announcements of God's judgment to the Gentiles... Uh, the gentle nations of Judah were shortened to the point, but now God's getting to his main point here that he wants to get across to Israel. And he goes into a little bit more detail with his frustration with his own people's sin. Let's read in chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, okay, this is Amos's audience. This is who he's talking to. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. 
I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest of warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. 3.1, nearing the end here. Hear the word of the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. And really, that last verse is where the stinger is found there, isn't it? The beginning of chapter 3, we hear this shocking message. It's actually because of God's intimacy with Israel. Because he's done so much for them in bringing them out of Egypt and defeating their enemies. Because he chose them out of all the families on the earth that he has to punish them. I'll read that verse one more time here. It says, You only have I chosen of all the families on the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Shockingly, God judges even his own. And this uh, really seems counterintuitive to us, right? We, we figure, well, hey, if, if God has a close relationship with them, if he's chosen them and he's chosen us in, in Christ, well, why would he judge his own? A part of that is because of his character. He's holy. He can't stand sin, and he doesn't want to be a part of his people. And part of that is because God cares about us. He's not just after the biggest number of people who can be minimally saved throughout history. He doesn't want just a quantity of so-called believers, but he wants a certain quality uh, in our lives as we follow after him. He wants a people that resemble him. And this brings us to our second point. God cares how we treat him and how we treat others. Now, the first type of sin uh, that this people were guilty of is they weren't worshiping God wholeheartedly. In other words, they weren't treating God well. Uh, Let's read very briefly. If you want to flip over chapter 5, we're just going to get a sample here. Chapter 5, verse 21. 5.21 says, I hate, this is God speaking here, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. And again, don't get caught up in all the details, but the idea here is God's coming against this superficial exercise of religion. Now, these people are doing everything right on the outside, right? They're observing all these religious festivals. They're bringing sacrifices. They're singing songs, and that sounds good. But there's something lacking on the inside, the particular thing that God points out is they're totally neglecting justice. 
In other words, they're not really letting their religion penetrate their hearts in such a way that their actions, actions change. And in doing that, they're dishonoring God. And we can be guilty of doing the same thing, though we do it in typically different ways. I mean, we might be really good at showing up to church and having good church attendance, but we might not be so good at showing up for people when they know that there's a need. We might be really consistent with tithing, but maybe inconsistent in telling the truth. Or maybe we love uh, to sing God's praises when we come into God's house of worship on Sunday, but we don't have a kind word to say to our spouse when we get home. We can be external. We can be superficial in our exercise of religion too. And really for the people in Amos' day, their hearts are divided. In the text we just read, in addition to worshiping Yahweh, and they are worshiping him in some way, they're also worshiping their other idols. The picture Amos is painting here is really of people with divided hearts. They're kind of going through the motions of the religion, but their hearts and their obedience is elsewhere. They're sitting in the pew, so to think, but they're dreaming of the Super Bowl. Their affection and loyalty to God are outward and not inward. Now, the second category uh, of sin that these people were guilty of is not loving their neighbors as themselves. They didn't treat other people well. Uh, let's, if you've got your Bibles there, let's just take a sampling of this in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 4. They weren't treating others well. Chapter 6, verse 4 says, You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. And again, without getting caught up too much on the details, the gist of this is that these people are self-absorbed, right? They're living for their own pleasure. They care nothing for the plight of their brother here that said is not grieving over the ruin of Joseph. And we can be the same way with our own sins. We can offer God kind of an empty religious service while keeping our hearts and our obedience at a distance from him. And we can really get so caught up in our own welfare and comfort that we too can end up trampling on or disregarding other people. And so the threat of God's judgment comes to a head kind of towards the end of the book of Amos with three visions that are given to him. And the last one of these three visions is really the famous one that this book is known for. So we're going to look at these visions quickly uh, with special attention given the third one. And we want to see that God has established a righteous standard for us to live by. Okay? So these three visions, they start in chapter 7. Uh, starting in verse 1. So we're going to do three of them. The first two are very short and focus on the third. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts. Okay, that's the first vision of judgment, locusts. After the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen the Lord said. Verse 4, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. Okay, here's the second vision. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. Okay, fire is the second one. It dried up the great deep and then devoured the land. And then I cried out, sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. Verse 7, 
This is what he showed me. Okay, and this is the last and most famous vision here of Amos. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. So let's talk about these, these uh, visions here. It's a, it's a series of judgments, basically, that God is planning on sending his people for their sin. First one is locusts. Amos pleads for mercy, and that one's avoided. The second one is a vision of fire. Amos pleads for mercy, and the Lord relents again. Two bullets dodged. But then the third vision comes, and things change. The vision is of a plumb line. And that's not something that we talk about a whole lot, but a plumb line is basically it's a string with a heavy weight at the bottom, right? You could tell what's straight up and down. So if you're a builder and you wanted to build a wall straight up, you'd take out your plumb line and say, okay, is this straight or not? <clears throat> and the message of this last vision is really clear to Amos. It's saying God is like that straight line. He's altogether righteous and he's set up a righteous standard for his people to live by. He can't keep on tolerating sin. He's not going to see us building the, the leaning tower of Pisa in our lives and say, hey, keep on building. Add another floor. My grace is going to cover you, man. Hey, viva messy Christianity. Right? Instead, he's going to say, hey, look here. The building's not straight. You better fix it or it's going to topple over. God is gracious. Hear that. God is gracious. But he's also righteous, and he does care how we live before him as Christians. He cares how we treat other people. And when we're building crooked, he wants us to see that we're offline, to stop, and to fix what's wrong. Even believers, even us, we need to take sin in our lives seriously. Repentance is for God's people too. And that's really what the book of Amos is about. Well, what I want to do kind of here as we get towards the back end is I want us to look about what does it look like in Amos to repent or to, to take our own sins seriously? How do you take your own sins seriously? How do you do that? I'm going to point out two things from the text here in Amos. The first thing is that repentance, or if you want to say taking your own sins seriously, includes turning to God with a broken heart. Uh, very quickly, I'm going to read in chapter 5. Verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It'll devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Now, twice in this very short passage, it says to seek, God tells Israel to seek him and live. Now, in contrast to that, he says, what you don't want to do is he names this bunch of places that he says, don't go to these places. Don't go to Bethel. Not meaning the church here, okay? <laughs> don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beersheba. And those places would have been locations where they might have had shrines set up that people would have gone on a religious pilgrimage and uh, that's what people would be accustomed to doing. And what God is meaning by this, he's saying is, I don't want you Israelites to show your repentance by just another external, meaningless act like you're accustomed to doing. Uh, I was thinking about this a, a bit this morning. 
really what they're getting at here is repentance is supposed to be something that's personal. It's something that's supposed to be relational uh, between us and God, and then as we sin against others, relational with them, rather than something mechanical. Okay, you get that contrast? It's relational rather than mechanical. And uh, the best example I could think of that kind of came to me this morning when I was thinking about how, think of two little kids fighting, right? Okay, you got two kids fighting and someone, I don't know, stubs the toe of the other one or something like that. And you tell the kids, you say, okay, say sorry to your sister, right? And if the kid goes, sorry. Okay, that's mechanical. You're going through the motions, but you're not in the heart, right? But we all know, and we were all taught from what you're very little, is it's not so much your external words, but are you really sorry in your heart? And that's what I think God is getting after here. It's personal. It's relational. It's not just a mechanical action. He says, I don't want you to show your repentance by promising me to go to church for the next three weeks or by promising to read through the Bible in a year or by listening only to Caleb for the rest of your life, right? I don't want a gimmick. I want your heart. I want you to come to me naked in all your sin and own it and humble yourself before me. I want you to bring me a heart that's broken over your own sin and then come to me. Seek me and live. And as an application point, we have to ask ourselves, when we repent, are we leaning on the mechanical? Are we just kind of going through some religious gymnastics, writing a big check to make it up to God? Or are we really kind of dwelling and owning our own sinfulness and seeking him for forgiveness? So that's the first thing. When we take our own sin seriously, we own our own sin and come to God with a broken heart in a personal and relational way. The second thing about repentance, too, is it includes a change. And we talked a lot about this last week, right? Read with me in Amos 5.14, if you're already in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 14, it says, God speaking again, says, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. A few verses down, same chapter, verses 23, 24. Away with the noise of your songs, verse 24. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. First part, we bring to God that broken heart. But he also wants us to be changed in such a way that after that, after we seek him and grieve for our sin, that we take steps to do the right thing, whatever that right thing is. So that's what repentance looks like in Amos. We really grieve over our sin, and then we change how we live. And so our application point really is to say, is there some sin in my life that I need to face and grieve over and bring to God? And what practical steps will be the first steps so that I live differently? Repentance is not an easy thing, right? We know this. But it is something that we, even as followers of Christ, need to really take to heart. God has set his plumb line out there. He is righteous, and his righteousness ought not to be mocked by us adding layer after layer to that leaning tower of Pisa saying, hey, I'm okay, I'm a sinner saved by grace, I'm just going to keep on building, add another floor. We need to humble ourselves and see that perfectly straight plumb line and take efforts to straighten what's crooked. Now, okay, you guys hopefully have been waiting for this, as have I. The good news is that the book of Amos 
this non-fatal heart attack that's supposed to shock people to repentance ends on a high note. Right? I'm going to jump to the end here in chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Amos, starting in verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8 says, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, destroys the, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword, and those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. But in that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one trading grapes. This is a time of great prosperity here. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord your God. And again, it's kind of a long and complex passage there, but the basic idea here is that God's judgment is intended to have a purifying effect on Israel. A remnant's going to survive. The bad apples or the sin is going to be removed. And God promises to greatly bless and abundance in the aftermath. And that's really the last point that we're going to end the sermon on here is God's eager to restore his people. Praise God. In other words, God wants his people to be right with him and to take hold of all the good he intends for us. And the way to do that, though, is to face this tough love, to look at our sin, to grieve over it, and to ultimately turn away from it and to turn to him so that he can forgive us and be used by him. Uh, the same thing, I'll just echo this here in the New Testament. It's basically said in the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 2.19. You don't have to look it up. It's a pretty familiar passage here. It says, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter, meaning wickedness, meaning that people repent here. They will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. I think that's what we all want. So I'll end with this. If we hear that wake-up call from Dr. Amos this morning, what is it that God wants us to change in our lives? I'll kind of end, hopefully, on a note of humor here. Um, this message uh, I prepared many weeks ago, okay? This is the, quote-unquote, the emergency backup sermon for when Eric got sick. Well, guess what? Eric got sick. Uh, like I said, I had the privilege of preaching here last week. Uh, and if you were here, you know I got to preach on what? Repentance. This week, preaching on Repentance. So I t- talked to Sharina in the office on Thursday when I found out I was preaching. I was like, oh, no, everyone's going to get repentance two weeks in a row. And I forget exactly how Sharina said it, but it was, it was quite funny. She says, well, maybe God's giving everyone a second chance if they didn't hear it last week. <laughs> maybe.
Let's pray. God, you are good, and we thank you that even your tough love is intended to bring us to wholeness, intended to make us like these vessels that can be used for your purposes. Lord, if, if it's just because it's in your sovereign will that you want us to hear this twice in two weeks back to back, Lord, guide us to take it to heart. Pinpoint things in our hearts that we need to give to you so that we can live in a way that really honors you and glorifies you. That's our desire. We love you and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.